Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Don't like blood and guts But I love them when they're lengthily discussed Cause nothing's more relaxing Than the cries of death and love So spend a Welcome to the long-awaited, much-anticipated, Tashin Shining Deep Dive! My name is Matt Corley. My name is Paul Rust. Welcome, guys. So lucky uh, uh, for me to be here uh, with Matt. But also with all y'all listening uh, right now, Matt, it is good to see you. And you're right, long-awaited, highly anticipated indeed. Uh, yeah. We're, we're going to crack open. Ooh. Now, Matt, I've, I've thought about this. If I was somebody uh, who didn't um, have this book, and it sounds like maybe it's going to be a year before mm-hmm. a thing comes out, I would uh, enjoy listening to this uh, to get a, a look at some of the information that I might not get for another year, just so that might be fun to hear. But good golly, man, I don't want to seem like the kid who's like, um, hey, I got a new Transformer. Come over and look at it while I play at mm. it. So as much as possible, I want you know uh, this to feel alive for people. Oh, yeah. And I had the concern of, well, are we going to spoil too much of the book? But then I thought, it's almost impossible because this thing is so chock full. These are just some cherry-picked things. And look... Look, listeners, how many I have. Yeah. We may not get to all of these. Um, yeah. And not only listeners, I said, look, listeners, because we should mention. Yes! The Baby Xeno live screamers are in full effect. That's right. Yeah. And this episode has been delayed twice only because we've moved episodes in front of it. Guests like Andy Daly and the author, co-author of this book with J.D. Rinsler. Is it J.D. or J.W.? J.W. Rinsler. J.D. Rinsler is, is uh, <laughs> he couldn't be here today. J.D. Rinsler is that uh, um, uh, recluse 
author who writes about making. Oh yes, that's what I'm thinking. It's like J.D. Salinger and J.D. J.W. Salinger and J.D. Rinsler Uh, and Lee Unkrich, who was the guest on our last episode, which was a real treat for us. Yeah, we got like really two fun surprises before we got to do this. Yes, getting to uh, talk to Andy Daly and Lee Unkrich. If you guys are just joining us for the first time with the mine in the shine, and though with us talking about this. Book just a little uh, uh, back history, and then we can explain what this Galdarn uh, web, uh, what this uh, podcast is about. Absolutely, but uh, yeah, Matt and I, we heard about this uh, book that was getting released by Tashin. We said it'd be really fun to get it and read it. You and I, over the last few months, as we've been waiting for this Biting the Shining podcast, we we've read it and uh, we've we've pulled some tidbits that we like and we're uh, stoked to share now as for this podcast Matt well oh boy oh boy it's with Gortley and Rust huh yes I want to tack on something yes, to that please. and that is Tashin called me I haven't even told you what Tashin called me because they heard about this podcast or they listened she, she, nice woman that called me said that she was a fan and that I haven't called her back I don't know exactly if anything's uh to be set up with it but it was just a sort of courtesy call of we just want to make sure you're enjoying this book toshin you're classy people that is classy yeah because i was worried you know it's probably a little bit of uh my catholic upbringing what did i do wrong and when am i going to get in trouble for <laughs> I it know. when you said that i was like are they calling to slap us on the wrist hey buddies don't spill our little secrets no uh-uh. They had my phone number, I think, because she knew what I had ordered. The Toshin book, and the I bought that Ken oh Adam design book that's over there. Well, uh, now it's quite the opposite. Now I feel like, uh, that's so nice. Yes. I feel cozy. Well, this is with Gorley and Russ. It's the podcast that takes its time doing what it do. And that is talking about chillers, thrillers, horrors, terrors, and uh, occasional cozies. Yeah, Almost you, always you know how sometimes the host of those horror things will be guys dressed up as Draculas and stuff? <laughs> That's great. We love that, too. But we're actually just, uh, you know, we're wearing casual clothes. We're casual folks talking casually about the, the, the movies. Uh, damn straight. That thrill us. Yeah, that's damn straight. You know, it's funny. Uh, right before we started recording, I was like, hey, buddy, Matt, you know what I've been watching that I really like is those old Siskel and Ebert episodes. Oh, yeah. And for whatever reason, nobody says, no, 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 you can't put those up. So there's a bevy of Ooh. Siskels and Eberts that you can watch. And they might be from cinematography, from time setting, uh, from the setting, the most coziest thing that I can tap into right now. But here's where I think we go a little extra cozy. That's right, Siskel and Ebert. Just our title alone, Matt, is with. Gorley and Russ. Siskel and Ebert. Siskel and Ebert's like, Siskel and Ebert, we're here. Let us in. Yeah. It's not called with Siskel and Ebert. But we're saying it's with Gorley and Russ. And a lot of times people watch Siskel and Ebert because they like the very non-cos element of two Mm. guys button heads. Right. But um, when you get to hear the little like sax theme come on (laughs) and then see two guys in like warm blazers and warm lighting. Yeah. And the best part, they they don't show the trailers. They show full scenes yeah. from the movie, so you yeah. get the coziness of just hearing a, oh. you know, a scene from the Mission in 1986. Oh, I gotta get on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the width of with Gorley and Rust also implies. 
that the listener's there with us. You yes. Know? That it's not just you and me. Yeah. It's you and me and Dupree, where the no. listener is always Dupree. It's the distinction that people make a lot of times with laughing. They go, we're not laughing at you. We're laughing with you. Mm-hmm. With yeah. is a kind That's uh, right. preposition. Absolutely. It's the kindest preposition you could have. Yes. Way better than on or... Uh, under away, forget it, forget it. Away from Gorley and Russ. No, 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 no. That's it's the rest weird. of your life. You don't need that. <laughs> <laughs> I almost misswallowed the cold brew that you gave me, which is oh, delicious. Thank you. A little bit of business. We have a Patreon, and it's called patreon.com slash with Gorley and Rust. Maybe you will recognize there's a with in there. It's because <laughs> we are with Patreon, uh, and <laughs> you can get mailbag episodes. Vid bits. I'll let you subscribe to even figure out what that is. Yeah, we just did one. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Where I recreated the being the next door neighbor Wilson from Home Improvement. That's right. With whip pans and sunglass pulls down like uh, risky business. We do feature film commentaries. We got one coming up this month where we're going to handle. Now, this may seem like a lot if you're a new listener to this podcast. We're going to run both versions of Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers simultaneously mm-hmm. and do a comment. Terry yeah. on them. Yeah. Because it hasn't ever been done. That's right. We do cozy award episodes, cozy tournament brackets. We uh, uh, There's a Discord where you can talk. And if you subscribe at the Baby Xeno level, Baby Xenomorph, you can do uh, live screams, which is just cool terminology for live streaming. And we're doing it right now. The podcast episodes. When you said, look, listeners, that's who uh, Matt uh, was referring to. Oh, But I... it seems appropriate with uh, uh, us talking Stanley Kubrick because he was a look photographer. Oh, for the magazine. Yes. You're right. These are, uh, we say, look, listeners. I just realized that my uh, thighs were f- front and center in this live streaming well, I don't that's know if not that's the biggest endorsement <laughs> to sign up. You know how many people want to do Gorley Thigh Watch? We know who you are. I apologize. You sick twist. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize to all listeners. I will resituate my posture because with these glasses and these thighs, they never the twain should meet. Um, and then. Uh, if you subscribe at the Baby Xenomorph level, we read your name. All you have to do is email us at gmail.com, which is with Gorley and Rust at gmail.com. <laughs> and we'll do that later in the episode. Excellent. Yeah. And that's not a, a Gorley and Rust at gmail.com. No, no. That's with Gorley and You're Rust. damn right. Uh, I think that's all the business except oh, to say we've yes. plotted out the rest of yes. this season if you want to go for yes. it. Yes. Uh, so... We have, uh, uh, we're going to be mining The Shining for two more glorious weeks. Next week, we're going to be talking about Room 237, the documentary that's all about the conspiracy uh, theories and interpretations. Some might say even misinterpretations, Mm. but uh, hey, I think it's all gold. Uh, Room 237 by director, uh, filmmaker Rodney Asher. And then the week after that, we're going to be closing out the Mining The Shining with... Doctor, that's not a criticism. That was just a funny way to say sleep. Doctor sleep. And I assume we'll do the director's cut, even though I think both you and I have only seen that version, but that seems to be what people want. People prefer, want us to watch the director's cut. That seems to be how people like watching Doctor Sleep. So I think that's a good way to go. All I remember from that movie is a top hat. 
I remember all the people looking like they were members of the Horde Festival. <laughs> That's right. They all looked like oh. uh, the backing band for Blues Traveler. So Horde Festival was Blues Traveler and who, like Spin Doctors? Or uh, was it more edgy than yeah, that? Yeah, it was jam band stuff. So yeah, I think even my, right. maybe like... Uh, um, yeah, spin doctors, uh, uh, blues traveler. I remember there's a guy I went to college with who's the sweetest guy, and he was kind of, of a. Of course, if he's into jam music, well, what a holes? Uh, he was an acolyte of Weird Al, and he did comedy songs, and yes. so he did a tour called the Board Tour. A spoof, yes, of a fest that that had spoof acts. I think it was just him as a one man show doing comedy. Okay, stuff. but he's seen he's seen around the corner of a great idea right here, which yeah. is a festival of spoof bands, and it's called the Board. Well, maybe a better name, <laughs> like Lollapa. Yeah, um, I was thinking uh, Pooza. <laughs> um, Wait, that is it. <laughs> You just emphasize poo. Lollapu. No, Alapapuza. Lollapooza. I'm not sure. What's uh, the bad person, the little demon in um, oh, The Exorcist? Pazuzu? Yeah. Puzuzu. If there is a horror podcast festival, it would be called Lollapazuzuluza. Uh, and if there was a possessed, bygone auto manufacturers festival, it would be called Joe Pazuzu. <laughs> oh my God. Yes, well, of course it would be called that. Ooh, Matt just lowered his seat here. I did. I, I just really want to guard the listeners from my bare legs right now. I am wearing pants. They're short pants, but they're when I sit, they're very short. I just got back from the gym, and so I'm just a mess. Oh, yeah, it's good that you clarified. I didn't clarify that you were wearing shorts when we were doing thigh talk. Either. That's what true. If you were just it's s- probably important to see. Not just in only underwear, but just completely bottomless. <laughs> Look, when uh, Paul showed up for this episode, he came with the the Toshin set comes with a huge scrapbook of photos, a box full of of the the all work and no play manuscript plus other little folios and such. But the for me the real gem is what is designed to look like a bible, like a Gideon's bible in the nightstand of a room at yes. the Overlook Hotel. Paul showed up and it's like, it felt like we were getting together for Bible study. I mean, look at, if you're streaming right now, you can see this. And it was under his arm and it was just like, you know, there was a portion yeah. of my life where I grew up in the kind of evangelical Christian world. It wasn't for me, but I'm very familiar with the look of people uh, mean, like assembling for Bible study. Mm-hmm. But it, the, And I witnessed this, occasionally it would just be two people. Mm-hmm. And that feels like maybe the most awkward situation that could ever exist on planet Earth. And I have lived through two-person Bible studies before. You've been a part of a two-person. And I was pressured into it. And it, I, I, I just didn't have enough of a voice. I was a young man and I just didn't feel like I could say no. I tried to weasel out of it multiple times and they were militant about it. To the you point know, of showing up at my house unannounced. Here's the thing, you know, both uh, uh, confession in the Catholic Church and oh, right. psychoanalysis, mm. they know sometimes people don't always need to be looking each other in the eye when they're talking deep, dark things, Good right? Point. So with, yeah. rec- with confession, you get that little wall up, so the priest mm. ain't looking at you, you're not looking at the priest. And then, yeah, with psychoanalysis, the, the couch, you know, the classic New Yorker cartoon of the guy on the couch with the... But I do think it's... Um, 
It's why in Scientology they want unbroken eyes and like with two person Bible study. I don't know if two people can really be talking about stuff. Uh, you you know, know, we're doing it right now, but this is with consent. This is voluntary. And it's because we're talking about fun yes. stuff. Yes. Fun stuff. That's all that matters. Yeah. Just go and meet up and talk about the fun stuff you love. You don't have to talk about what a creep you are in life. I know. I mean, I guess there are some people out there that love the Bible, but... And I guess it's not always Bible. about being a creep. It's about... Um, but yes, with this Bible... Um, uh, it has that rubbery kind of mm. plastic, whatever that cover is. is. It like, yeah, it's like vinyl. And um, I remember somebody from the, um, even though I went to a Catholic school, kindergarten through 12th grade, somebody came from the King, the King James people would yeah. come and hand out those little kind of like small rhyming dictionary type oh, yes. Bibles that had like the rubbery <laughs> cover and they were whole, fun to hold and yeah. stuff. And I remember... We all got them handed out, and everybody's kind of like, well, I have to take this home and put it on my shelf now. Like, I can't. Like, yeah. this is... But I remember this kid, Chris, cracked me up in front of everybody he took it just threw it in the garbage. <laughs> <laughs> He's like a sixth grader. And we were all like, what the? <laughs> that guy shot to the ladder, to the top of the ladder of cool. <gasps> And well, straight to hell. found out he uh, was a pretty big meth addict. Oh. <laughs> so I don't know how this was uh, well, always lined hand. up. Oh, God. That was God punishing him because he threw the Bible. After he threw it away, he was like, hmm, anybody want to go for some meth right now? <laughs> well, I guess we just start going through this yeah. book willy-nilly and if we want to talk about any of the things so the way you did it is beautiful it's sort of this uh menagerie of colors with the little um uh you put them in the yeah in the paragraph the colors mean nothing though i i they're i well they mean something to the human eye that it's that's beautiful true. that's true <laughs> uh, and i uh, kept a little list where I would see this mat. I would just write the pages down of the ones I found interesting with a keyword. Oh. And then I would go back. And what it did for me was, uh, um, um, uh, what was I going to say? When I um, read it now, um, it, it has been easy for me to, I haven't gone back and gone huh okay yeah uh, so uh so yeah let's just go through it and we'll uh okay um now i think also just before we jump in we could talk about how how we read this mm, yeah i think we both loved it and i was scared to lose good things and so i was like the kid who was like eating a little bit of taffy you you savored it you yeah. stretched out i devoured this but you had a good meal oh i I just a ate this like a full box of heavenly Oreos or something. I just a big box of Nilla. Oh, I tore it. <laughs> I tore through it. Yeah, um, and uh, I couldn't help myself. No, but that speaks to uh, its 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 power. I just love movie factoids and anecdotes and trivia, and mm -hmm. this that's this whole book. And like I told uh, Lee Unkrich. I was like, each paragraph usually has two or three details yeah. that I never knew. So, so it's we're a, not spoiling the majority yeah. of. Well, of I think this. we can do a combination of what you're talking about, which is like we don't we share enough that it's not spoiling. Yeah, but we share enough that it's also doesn't um, 
uh, my fear of the Transformers kid. But I think in a way, by sharing these details, it's like, let's play with the Transformers together. Absolutely. Okay. Let's go. I've got one here. Let's do it. Let's okay. jump in. Um, sorry, I guess I'm not ready. No, all good. Um, well, it's just, here's a quote, and I'm trying to remember who this is from, because it's I didn't seem to... Uh, oh, Kubrick said in 1980... Um, Jack must be imagining the th these things because he's crazy. That's uh, This allowed you to suspend your doubt of supernatural until you were so thoroughly into the story that you could accept it almost without noticing. It's not until Grady slides open the bolt of the larder door allowing Jack to escape that you are left with no other explanation but the supernatural. Okay. I love so that. That's statement pretty black or white. After that, it is yeah. uh, supernatural. And um, I do like part of the thrill of the movie is I think watching it and going like how much is this madness and how much is it uh but um I think yeah watching it a uh, first time viewer would think okay I, I really have to wrestle with the fact that somebody had to open that door right yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and I love that we're doing this before room 237 because some of the stuff in that mm -hmm. documentary kind of is dealt with here mm -hmm. in, in some way or not. And the uh, Kubrick estate even uh, speaks to Room 237. Right. So we can, right. when we get to that. We, okay, uh, you're up. Yeah, the um, thing that I thought was really interesting in that very opening that was just like uh, the dis, uh, dispelled this myth that I had heard and I took as a fact, a truth, which is Stanley Kubrick reads books to know which ones he wants to adapt. And he was throwing um, uh, the book, The Secretary Has a Story, where he's like, if he didn't like a book, it would get thrown against the wall. And one day I didn't hear a book hit the wall. And I read it and he was like, I'm reading The Shining. I love it. Now, I like that story. But in this book, it's just basically like, no, Warner Brothers got the, the rights to it through this producer's group. They went out to different directors. Stanley Kubrick took an interest in that. He read it. He read the galleys. He liked it. it, it is just I like had never heard a, that anecdote before. That's great. Yeah, yeah, so it is like having to let go of certain yeah. myths that you love, but getting the truth of just like how that worked out and how producers just sort of like know to go to certain people who have talents about it. That's I good. love that yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, the... Uh, you can share something, Matt. If you, okay, we can well, go back and forth. That'd be fun. Um, this was about uh, Danny, who was talking to Vitaly, who was Kubrick's assistant, right? Who was also sort of responsible for casting the role of Danny. Yeah, like, Leon Vitaly, who was in um, uh, Barry Lyndon. He's an actor in that. And then Kubrick asked him to help find the boy. And then he stuck around and was the assistant on yeah. and he Full did Metal like Jacket and Eyes Wide Shut. Na He's national Wide Shut. tours to find this boy. Yes. Yeah. And you go take a, the big takeaway from this book is the reason Danny is good is because Leon Vitale is good. Yeah. And he's a good actor and knew how to speak to a child. To yeah, that's very clear. Yeah. He said, talking about Danny, Lee is talking, or Leon's talking about Danny. Danny said, gee, I love your suit. I had a green corduroy suit on. That was it. From that moment on, we didn't stop talking. He opened up completely. He was so so kind, so kind of amazing. He was only four years old, but he was so focused. Mm. Oh wait, Danny held my hand as we walked into the room. Vitaly says. Then we sit down on two chairs, just looking at each other. 
like just like Bible study. Yeah. He wouldn't look me in the eyes or face and I wasn't going to push it. I wanted to let him break the ice. In the end, he said to me after about two minutes of silence, that's about a suit. I have some of these things I haven't exactly lined up right, but he's like, okay, the first test this kid has to pass is, can he shut the fuck up for more than two minutes? (laughs) Yeah, really? So yeah, people are trying to do, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Milena Cannonero recalls that Kubrick cast Danny Lloyd because he was taken by Lloyd's natural way, his looks, also because of the way Danny invented the wiggling of his little finger, mm. referring to the way Danny crooked, crooked his finger and did a croaky voice for Tony. Part of that idea come from, came from Vitaly. They told me about Tony living in my mouth and wiggling my finger when he talked, Danny Lloyd said in 1980, but I invented the voices. Very cool. Yeah. And speaks to this thing that it's not this... Uh... Um, one vision that Stanley Kubrick's going for. Yeah. It really, you see it is, his work is like whatever that thing is, um, just a, a jet going up and just like, <laughs> right. everything's getting sucked up into this amazing jet that's just flying. Turbine, per- yeah. yeah. Yes, yes. Um, the uh, a thing that I thought was a cool little insight, a lot of people will have made the comparison before of... Uh, Stanley Kubrick likes chess and making a movie is uh, uh, like making uh, playing chess. But there's a couple times where they get uh, into the distinctions about it that I wanted to share uh, or, or get more specific. And it's not just like uh, a platitude or something. Um, Kubrick um, mused upon Napoleon and chess. He says this quote from Kubrick. I would have suspected Napoleon couldn't have been a very good chess player even though they said he played it a lot. Because one of the key things in master chess is that you do have to recognize that there are times when you neither have attacking moves nor mm. defending moves. And those intermezzo, intermezzo? Intermezzo? Intermezzo moves are what the Germans call Ein Zweischug. Z-W-I-S-C-H-E-N-Z-U-G. Ein Zweisug. Ooh, nice, Gorley. Thank you. These are the moves that very often make a difference in those great games because you've really got nothing to do. You're not being attacked. You've got nothing to attack. It's a very complex situation. And not did that just only open my mind of like, oh, that's the specific way chess and filmmaking can work together, but also just the possibility of um, just a human behavior thing that Stanley Kubrick seemed to yeah. conquer, which is yeah. the idea that I have to make a decision right now and there's no time to, and I don't even mean in terms of creation, I just mean in life, the idea that like... There are times where it's a zero-sum game, uh, and you got to do something that's not going to really gain or lose you anything. You just have to yeah. fucking make a move. <laughs> it also puts insight into his, you know, extended takes thing of just maybe a lot of those takes were just playing for time until mm. a move could be made or something like that. Yeah, well said. Yeah. yeah. Um, overall, the October outline. Speaking about one specific outline of the script or treatment could be called the most Johnsonian version of the story, which was his co-writer. The character of Wendy is strongest in it. She is the hero of the story. For example, when Wendy and Danny are in the snowcat early on, she's feisty and knows how to drive one because she's a country girl. 
Throughout, she is more of a well-balanced woman who happened to choose her mate badly and is coming to grips with that choice. By the end, she's quite strong. She realizes her husband is nuts, and when Jack comes after her, she doesn't need a bat. She pushes him down the stairs. Hmm. A few scenes later, when he attacks her physically, strangling her, she stabs him in the belly. When Halloran, at this point in the draft, by the way, Halloran uh, becomes a villain, betrays her and goes after her son, she goes right after him too. Her, quote, her eyes blazing, her hair flying wildly, her lungs nearly bursting. Wendy runs through the rooms. In her frenzied search for the child, she herself will come to resemble some maddened, demoniacal figure. Hmm. Wendy will rush howling out of a doorway, stabbing in a frenzy with her long boning knife so that the old lady in Psycho will look like a pushover in comparison. There will be no question about how she is able to kill a homicidal maniac. (laughs) She will temporarily have become one herself. Hmm. Oh, as if, uh, well, she's not saying this, but that the hotel would almost have its power in. Yeah, yeah. Um, Or The Shining or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that seems to, and Diane Johnson talks about that a couple other times about how that was the surprise for her from the writing to the actual producing, because I think they were rewriting stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like, uh, Shelley Duvall was cast cause she was, uh, a great actor with a interesting presence for a horror movie. And then it maybe sort of flowed out from there. Yeah, what everybody felt was true, like and maybe on set it just it felt less and less true that she would have the bad. You know, like we've been having conversations sort of about like, oh, what kind of woman would be with Jack and stay with Jack and put up with his shit? Would a Jessica Lang put up with his shit? The thing I I just was thinking as we were sitting here was um, just because of what the times were. I could see it being that a smart, capable woman marries a guy in 1967, 68, and then the 70s roll around and women's liberation begins. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, oh, I am an empowered woman who is in a relationship that is now old-fashioned, but... So that a Jessica Lang type could reasonably fit into a movie like this. Like she's yeah. having her own awakening about well, I her think strength. it would have been very timely too, because yeah. this was the time yeah. when a generation was divorcing and people were realizing this is not the way it should mm-hmm. have gone for me. And this could have been an allegory, not just for a, a, a man being bothered when he's trying to work, but a woman realizing she's made a mistake. You know? Yeah. It would have been an interesting element yeah, i would I, love to see that version of jessica lang or jane fauna just curious i guess it's like that oh it's not the same awakening but it is sort of a version of a smaller one which is more somebody is rather than it being oh i'm under somebody's thumb and i'm figuring out my ways to get out from under it it's like um somebody's under their thumb and there's struggles with being under a thumb. Yeah. <laughs> it's more like what the yeah. movie ends up being. Ultimately, I think this version is the, the finished version is more scary because I feel how vulnerable mm-hmm. Wendy Torrance is yeah. and Danny. It's almost like two children in a way. Like a, it's almost like yeah. a big sister and a little yeah. brother. Uh-huh. And that's uh-huh. really scary. Yeah. Cause yeah. Jack is so aggressive that if it were Jane Fonda, I think you would know just from, 
uh, like pop culture experience that. Well, Hanoi Jane would roll in on a tank. <laughs> Sorry, Jackie. She, uh, she'd, she'd go up to Stanley Kubrick. Sorry, instead of this being a snow cat, can it be a tank? <laughs> <laughs> An aircraft gun. Aircraft flakjack. Am I conflating Hanoi Jane and Michael Dukakis being in a tank? I think so. Okay, she was okay. in an anti-aircraft gun. Okay. okay. Yeah, but I don't mind that one bit. Well, now that well, clearly begs the I'm question, the superior one here. what about Michael Dukakis in this role as hey, Wendy you know, Torrance? Well, that was, I think, one of the more interesting tidbits is that Michael Dukakis was bandied about as a possible uh, Lloyd. Yeah. The bartender. <laughs> uh, a little uh, tidbit that is shared, uh, as long as I'm talking about that, is on page. Um, uh, it, it, it's a detail about uh, Christopher. Oh, oh, on page 376, because uh, he had just done a, a Going South. Uh, uh-huh. Jack Nicholson wanted Lloyd the bartender to be played by Christopher Lloyd. That's right. Yeah. And it would have been a perfect another little name matchy. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's weird. Imagine that Christopher Lloyd plays Lloyd the bartender. And then, of course, we may have talked about this on previous episodes, but Kubrick was pretty dead set on Slim Pickens playing Halloran. Yeah. And then when Slim Pickens ultimately decided not to do it. Jack Nicholson was the one yeah. who suggested Scatman Crothers because they had done work together. And I think Leon Vitale has a quote about he would have... Um, there was some resentment of Jack Nicholson suggesting him because if Scatman Crothers was not at his strongest in terms of memorizing and stuff, uh-huh. and it was like, oh, you should have given us a heads up about that. Oh. Yeah. But um but wasn't it wasn't it kind of suggested in this book if I remember correctly that Slim Pickens was basically like I I can't do another movie with this guy. Yeah, I know what this with is going to be. Kubrick? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um but the um the actor who was chosen to play uh Lloyd, uh he was told to play it just as friendly and affable as possible. Yeah, Joe Turkle. Joe Turkle. So when I imagine Christopher Lloyd, I'm like, okay, would that have been? Would he have been friendly? He can be friendly, so I would believe that. The main thing that I... Joe Turkle is obviously the right way to go. That's yeah. what we all know and love. Uh, but the thing, the only thing that breaks my heart about it is like, I think Christopher Lloyd photographed by Stanley Kubrick and the Overlook would look on amazing. that bar with that underlighting. Yeah, his features are so like perfect for yeah. whatever that. I mean, Turkle's got that no eyebrow washout, but yeah. yeah. And he had yet to do Taxi. People would have only known him from Cuckoo's Nest, right? He would have been in um, Taxi. So people, yeah, there would be a little bit of association. Reverend Jim be baggage. Weird. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then especially as you go on to see it later after Back to the Future Roger Rabbit yeah yeah yeah. he does kind of have a Jack Nicholson energy too so maybe that wouldn't have necessarily worked having two kind of like actors like that yeah Um, I was watching Inner Space recently Uh Dennis Quaid is doing a Jack Nicholson impression through the whole thing I think I noticed that too I watched that not too long ago yeah he's like well what do you think I'm just a cadet here baby (laughs) (laughs) stuff like that the whole time I would love it but it more seems less like a conscious thing and more like oh I bet any Act, mo- wannabe movie star in the 80s was just like, I'm going to use the blueprint of Jack Nicholson yeah, for my performance. Probably. Um, 
so I shared that Christopher Lloyd one. Uh, uh, well, but, here's one. Yes. Meanwhile, Watson tours Jack around the hotel. In revisions, Kubrick noted that Jack has a vague sense of the layout of the hotel, although he's never been there before. He flashes back to the moment where he breaks Danny's arm, though it happens off screen, and we see only Ren- Wendy's reaction. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, the use of flashback, because there's... Um, on set photos, uh, uh, on location photos, rather, of um, Eyes Wide Shut for flashback scenes that aren't used in oh, the movie. interesting. Where uh, the couple and their daughter are in like a rowboat in a pond. And so they think that might have been filmed. So when she's referencing the day they spent together before she saw the... Because they have his imaginations of that. So it would be like him remembering and going to that. It's funny that, yeah, I, there's... Like with narration and flashbacks, it seems like things get used and then kind of dropped because yeah. there was the possibility of Jack narrating some of the Shining Ooh, as well. Interesting. Um, yeah, the uh, but the um, uh, the wait, sorry, um, I lost my train of thought. But uh, with the detail you just shared there. About him having a familiarity of being there before? Yeah, I guess that's also like um, whatever the kind of Jack references that about deja vu and yeah. stuff when he's walking around the hall. Yeah. Um, the uh, one thing that I just was like, it was like, oh, that's a crazy detail I've never heard before. What an interesting bit of trivia. On page 215, uh, that Diane Johnson, the co screenwriter of uh, uh, The Shining, Used to work at the Timberline Lodge. Yeah, that the Shining is the basis for. Yeah, and so she said when she walked down to the set, that's the one that the sets were based on, right? Not mm-hmm. that. Yeah, she was like transported to a different thing. That's that's the devil work. Yeah, there. that's crazy. That's the devil working. I like this. The next scene, and this is about an earlier draft. The next scene was tentatively titled "The Mary Janes," but Kubrick crossed it out. While playing in a sandbox, Danny finds a pair of shiny black patent leather girl's shoes. Their white linings are stained with blood. Tony tells him not to show them to anyone, so Danny buries them in the sand. A later version omitted Tony's advice. Hmm. Whoa. Yeah. Um, Yeah, the miniseries makes the choice to have Tony seen. Uh, the the made for TV miniseries. You see Tony and him talking to him, and then when he grows, Danny grows up. You see that Tony is him grown up. Ooh, I don't think I remember that. Yeah, mm. I'm glad there wasn't a scene Tony in this show. Yeah, yeah. Because is Tony played by this in the miniseries by? It's the same. Actor. No, it's, it's just like you see this older actress through the uh, movie, and then at the end, when Danny's grown up, he graduates, and you're like, oh grown-up Danny is okay that's interesting but yeah yeah it's kind of like that um the kid that Disney's movie where like grown-up Bruce Willis talks to his oh, kid version so that's what that was about yeah boy that guy loves looper themed movies <laughs> yeah young versions of himself he's got some weird kink <laughs> about you know maybe though the kid isn't about maybe it is he's just like a guardian angel but he is because he's a guardian angel in North as well. He's going in and giving Jesus. kids advice. Bruce Willis pumped them brakes yeah. about giving advice to kids. Yeah, fucking weirdo. <laughs> Here's something similar. Jack um, irritably tends to the generator. Uh, 
Oh, while Jack irritably talking about Wendy, <coughs> while Jack irritably tends to the generator, she explores and finds eerie mementos in the basement area, a buffalo head wrapped in a plastic bag and a small teddy bear hanging by a thick rope tightly knotted around its neck, its belly slashed open. A bloody bed sheet lies nearby. Kubrick crossed out Johnson's non-emotional response for Wendy writing. Wendy would be very upset about this. Hmm. hmm. That's a, I guess a distinction of the, is somebody sort of cool and level-headed? Yeah. Versus somebody. Uh, when uh, Wendy goes down and checks on that stuff, I noticed a thing that you do see is um, like a nudie calendar up. Well, speaking of that, uh-huh. suddenly, this is about the, the big gathering. Suddenly, the band leader says into a microphone, Ladies and gentlemen, the midnight hour is upon us. Unmask and let's fuck. He pulls off his mask to reveal a hideous face with blood springing from his forehead and droplets. Then the room is empty again. Little uh, eyes wide shut. Yeah. Action there. Take off the masks and let's F. I'm sorry. What movie is this? What podcast is this? Pardon me. <laughs> I told you what uh, something a little unseemly would, would happen. Uh, if my family and I were watching a video yeah. and somebody like, you know, uh, said the F word, one of my parents would go and grab the case that it came in and go, what is this rated? <laughs> that was like the way to be like, oh, I don't like what this, what is this rated? But, okay. But well, it was it performative for you guys or were they really concerned? I think they didn't know what it was rated okay. and they didn't need to refer. Well, I guess Caddyshack 2 is rated PG. Interesting. Uh, um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's not true. I mean, not the Caddyshack yeah. 2. Uh, the other one was... When did we start watching movies like this? Was oh, another thing. I remember that they would say to each other or just to the room? To the room. We were watching A Fish Called Wanda once, <laughs> and Kevin Klein is saying to John Cleese about Jamie Lee Curtis, he's like, I don't care what you do. Fuck her blue. And my dad was like, when did we start watching movies like this? <laughs> I must have missed the family meeting where we ratified into existence this kind of filth. <laughs> uh a cool thing, uh, the, speaking of cool, me just saying that, uh, this was referenced with uh, Lee in our last episode, but here's the actual quote. It's from the assistant editor, Gil Smith. Stanley was a lovely guy, but he was very much a nerd, and he had a problem with cool guys oh. like Jack. He couldn't mess with Jack because Jack was very, very cool. And also very competent. He did his job so well. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> it's just not... I mean, uh, the, for me, it was delightful because it's just like, that's not the conception you have. Uh, yeah. It, it is like supposed to be this like towering figure, but somebody being like, afraid to... If you look at the perspective and the arc of Kubrick's career, and early on, he's working with Kirk Douglas. He's working with... You know, George C. Scott, Sterling Hayden, yeah. alpha guys, right? Yeah. And even uh, Peter Sellers would be yeah. in alpha in his talent. Right. Yeah. And you can see as a young man, there's not even probably a, a real consideration about uh, controlling them. Mm. And then I bet around this time is when he's starting to feel it. Hmm. Like, oh, this is a guy I can't control, but I, I think I want to control. And then the next two films are basically filled with people he could completely control, including Tom Cruise, who's a cool guy. But I think Kubrick had more of a clout and a stature that he could actually alpha him. 
That is amazing, Matt. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, just to, you know, this is one editor's opinion about Stan, so it's right. not the truth. But to your point, that is funny that it would be like, in the same way that no, he'd I've make watched, London, New York. Yeah. He's like, I don't need to go to New York. Yeah. I'll make London, New York. I'll bring Tom Cruise here and his wife and I will I will basically control them. I mean, I've watched Eyes Wide Shut before and th- thought, this is so... There's some... Must be some delight in yeah. taking this cool guy and like cucking him yeah, and humiliating him uh, to the point where I'm not even going to give this guy the monologue that's going to like make this a great performance that people he gets like robbed of that he is cucked by the movie in a way like Nicole Kidman gets like two amazing scenes and he gets like so the thought of like somebody kind of being like uh yeah I want to be alpha and I'm gonna alpha this cool handsome dude uh and the full metal jacket is totally that I mean it is a group of guys um and the one thing that I've said uh, as a criticism on my end of Full Metal Jacket is he originally wanted to cast, you know, Anthony Michael Hall and actors who were legit 18, 19 year olds. So when you watch it, you are watching me like, wow, these are babies. So then you think, okay, that's even more of a difference in terms of uh, a power dynamic. If you're plucking Anthony Michael Hall and these young actors who it's maybe their third or fourth movie and they're just, um, because with, Full Metal Jacket, the way you cast it, I love it, but... Why didn't he do that? I think it was probably, if I had to guess, it was finding actors that were it's great and, and right for it. Right. I mean, Anthony Michael Hall didn't do it because of like contract disputes and stuff. Like I think he wanted to get paid more, and finally there was a stalemate. Oh, I was like, okay, I'm not going to cool. deal with this. Hmm. And probably the same stuff that it sounds like conditions with Jack Nicholson like how long can I be there yeah if you go over how much more do I get paid so maybe that but uh yeah the um uh when I do watch Full Metal Jacket it's funny there's like nine receding hairlines of that trip yeah yeah <laughs> it's like if they were babies and I think yeah. it really what's his name Ar- Arliss yes uh, yeah that's what I was thinking about yeah yeah he looks like a an, an accountant. It's or, okay because Matthew Modine's hairline is what's the opposite of receding, like advancing enough to make up for it. What's that called? Yeah, like in a battle. Or yeah, like, advancing, <laughs> charging, like charge of the light brigade. <laughs> in the finale, Halloran will become an appalling figure of lunatic savagery, smashing at walls with an axe and making hideous noise. The soundtrack would consist of a montage of terrifying sounds. Frightful whispers from the hotel which guide the chef, howling storm blasts of electronic music and electronic distortions of Halloran's thoughts. I mean, it's crazy what what versions of this movie we could have. Yeah, because that sounds like um, Apocalypse Now style, sort of like psychedelic, phantasmic yeah. sort of stuff. That's yeah, like the horror. meant to kind of uh, awe yeah. you. It is a difference than. Um, like it, it ain't close encounters at the end, you know. Right. It's it's not like, and if anything, it's like the colors get darker and colder, and then they're out in the maze, and it's snow, and like it's not uh, explosions and and awe. Yeah. Um. But the 
Because, yeah, I, I just wonder, like, the... Um, the it, it reminded me of this uh, one page I wanted to bring up. Uh, now that I think about it, it's it was on 617 here. And um, it's about, again, it's uh, Gil Smith. Um, and it, 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 it speaks to this ending and kind of where it's going and uh, how, how it did end versus what you just uh, described. He shot this whole scene with all these plaster dummies with cobwebs and things, says Gil Smith. He did these quite weird scenes where it almost felt like he, it was almost like he felt the film wasn't going to be good enough. So we wanted to add all this weird stuff into it to make it more exciting. There was a period where he did seem to lose confidence in the film a bit. Maybe he wanted to make it more unusual and wasn't really sure how. Hmm. Um, so it's either coming to peace with like that it's not going to be total spectacle, but having some reservations that it needing to add a few of those things like the skeleton dough. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Um, here's something on pay for those involved. Basing his figures on information provided by Harlan, Hitchcock projected his best guesses. He began with the above the line figures, story rights, 250,000, Kubrick's free, 1,015,000, plus 50,000 for transportation, living and other costs. Screenwriter Diane Johnson, 20,000, Jack Nicholson, a total of $2 million, plus 12000 for his secretary and 50000 living expenses. Shelley Duvall for 18 weeks, who, who worked much longer than Nicholson, 120000 plus two more weeks for 16000 and 50000 living costs and so on for a subtotal of $4,024,100. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Getting those real numbers crunched, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, the... Once you know that a lot of the decision-making was based on the amount of days they could use Danny Lloyd as yeah. an actor from America working right. in the UK, and, and then and Nicholson the, too. the amount of days they could keep Nicholson, yeah. it does shed a light a little bit on the thing I was saying a couple episodes ago about how it's there's once there's really only one scene where all three of them are unfocused together right. sharing one space, and after that it is like... I mean, it feels like it's it was a one of those industrial choices that affect <laughs> creative it's, choices. It's a shame and and rare for someone of Kubrick's caliber from that point on. But talking, what is that scene where they share that moment? And I want to take a quick tangent to talk about your Daft Punk sync because oh yeah, do you remember what's going on in your sync at that scene when they're all three in in the focus? car? Yeah, well, just. If anybody's listening to this that's not on the Patreon, we've talked about this before, but a listener put together some of the highlights of that sync of mm -hmm. the Daft Punk album over The Shining. Mm -hmm. It's really incredible. Yeah. It's so great that you did. And it. the good news is whether you use the uh, American cut or the European cut, either one works. Really? Because that's how dedicated Daft Punk was to syncing up their album with The Shining. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, uh, oh, a detail that was like, for me, one of those things of... Oh, I get 
the same feeling as um, that. Oh, and that steady cam is following Danny around the hotel when uh-huh. he's on his big wheel. Well, that looks a lot like the shots at the beginning with the helicopter. Uh, at the very, very beginning of the movie with the helicopter shots going over the car, winding up. Just like, yeah, I know that's not a steady cam shot, but whatever that thing is of following the something. gliding, yeah. Yeah. Um, this is from the... Uh, uh, He says uh, this filmmaker um, discusses uh, the uh, Jeff Blythe, who is um, working with Greg uh, McLiverary. He said that the he had seen some of the Steadicam shots that they were shooting in the hotel, and so that when it came time to shoot the helicopter shots. He was like, oh, I'll try to have the same precision and control that I saw in the steady cam. Just he thought it looked the same. Oh, my God. But for me, that was cool because it was like a, whatever cool magic that happens when a group of people all really care about something yeah. passionately. It won't necessarily take one leader to say something. You just people kind of get a hit off what somebody else is doing creatively and then yeah, follows it and then another person signs off on it. That's it's true collaboration because yeah. the people are looking for the bigger picture. They're looking for the betterment of the production, not just their role or whatever. That's Kubrick was a master of surrounding himself with the people that cared. They were maybe loyal to a fault sometimes, you know, just as in a working sense, but the, collaborative stuff they got out of the artistic side of things was pretty amazing. Yeah, it does sound like um, a real you say jump. Yeah. Or, or I say jump, you say how high. Yeah. This is from, uh, this is a letter that Tad Michael, the general manager of the Timberline Hotel, sent to Stanley Kubrick. This brings me to a very real situation with Dick Constrom has asked me to refer to you for your consideration. Apparently, a few weeks ago, there had been a mention in the local press of The Shining being filmed in part at Timberline Lodge. We have already had several sightseers and tourists asking to see Room 217, which is what it was in the novel. Mm-hmm. It is very probable that once the movie is released and known locally, we might have a serious difficulties in renting our room 217 as some of our guests could be afraid of being chased by the bloated body of the, quote, bathtub lady. I think that might be the wrongest statement I ever know, made I know. in the history of Boy, the universe. Miss out. <laughs> if at all possible, Dick would like you to change the number 217 to 237, 247, or 257, neither of which exists at the Timberline Lodge. Okay, every component of that baffles me that they would think people wouldn't want to stay in the room in a movie. That baffles me. Of course people would. This was the day when people would throw away footage and props and costumes. Nobody thought there was any credence to it. It baffles me that there's not a 237. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, oh, oh, that number is available. It baffles me. That Stanley Kubrick would be like, okay, yeah, whatever I you know. want to do. He like, never I guess he must care. have been okay with it being 237. And then you see some of the math he's doing with uh, the 42 on uh, Danny's um, uh, sweatshirt and stuff. Yeah. But um, so maybe it all was a lucky thing that it worked out. But that thing has always perplexed me. It's like, 
I don't know how any of that worked out. And also that that guy had the balls. I know. Like, I know. Can you change this? Um, should we take a quick pee break? Sure. With Marley and Rust. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. With Corley and Rust. All right, we're back. We are back. Um... The uh uh, so hey, what they gonna we can talk about on six ninety one? I found this interesting. It was a little uh, detail, not necessarily related uh related to The Shining in that it's about uh Stanley Kubrick, but um he was going to be making uh. A potential uh, movie with he was considering James Gardner for a movie. Kubrick was yeah for what movie? Um, I love James Gardner. It's called uh, I think Night Drop. No, hold on. Yes, during one of the many pauses while reels were rewound or a certain slate searched for, Kubrick jotted down in his notebook a list of future projects and actors. Napoleon Tromneville, Eric B. Eric what? Eric B. for Napoleon or Tromneville. So, Eric B. Um, oh, Eric Bana. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> obviously. Uh, Night Drop, James Garner. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. Do you think that was like a spy movie? Uh, and he was also considering um, Napoleon and Josephine for Al Pacino. Yeah, Night Drop. Oh. Yeah, maybe it was a, a spy thing, but... Yeah, how cool would that be? Because yeah. James Gardner seems sort of um, so quintessentially like uh, American. Yeah, like it would be interesting to see him dropped in a weirdo movie. Yeah, there's there's a movie called I think it's called Thirty Six Hours with James Gardner that That's I've never weird. seen it, but I it's on my watch list. It's got it's got like a kind of he's a man that knows too little sort of thing. Uh-huh. You know, I'm curious to watch it. I really love James Garner. Yeah. What do you uh, like about Garney baby? He just seems genial and kind and warm and friendly. He also remember reminds me my two best friends growing up were my neighbor neighbors, Kelly and Christy Grenager. Mm-hmm. And he reminds me of their dad and he was just kind of fun and would always like welcome you with a pun or something mm-hmm. like that. And dad, 
jokes before they were called dad jokes and stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. While you're talking about James Garner, it's making me think like, yeah, there's, it seems like there's a lot like him, but there's really only like one like him. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, yeah. Also, there's guys, I mean, there's guys who look like that and can be genial and likable, yeah. but his particular type of like genialness, it doesn't feel phony or no. saccharine or, or there's like, kind like of me, like me. Poor man's version of him, which is maybe Dirk Benedict, you know? <laughs> but one reason to love James Garner is he takes care of our boy in The Great Escape, blind Donald Pleasance. He's the guy in the prison that's like, I'll take care of you and takes him along on the escape. That's good, yeah. So, I mean, right there, he's, his credentials are... <laughs> well, he's a lot much. better than uh, Widmore, or who's the guy who's trying to hurt him in Halloween 6. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's an anti-him. Um, here's something on... That first day, Jack Nicholson was SB at his hotel on standby for scene 11 in Ullman's office, but was released at noon. He did attend a standard medical examination for insurance reasons, Kubrick biographer John Baxter claims that production was worried about Nicholson's health due to reports of his, quote, lavish cocaine consumption in the company of co-star John Belushi on location shooting Going South. Decades later, Johnson confirmed that their fears were justified. When Jack arrived, he was manic and he was very coked up. Um, yeah, and do you think then he's like slightly... Uh detoxing while he's shooting The Shining or do you think he's just got a a London hookup with the powder boys? I bet he does. I bet he does. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's funny like 1982, you mentioning John Belushi. Yeah. Because I do. You know I love my historical pivot points, Matt. Uh-huh. But I think 1982 is like a pivot for new... Hollywood. Okay. Like after that, things people kind of clean up. And I've wondered about, like, yeah, so like uh, on the set of like Witches of Eastwick, as Jack Nicholson, it was like, mm-hmm. Hollywood's not that fun anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I know, because he's working with slightly younger actresses who probably aren't as much into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or it's just like it's, the culture isn't built around, like, we know Jack loves cocaine. So yeah. we're going to. It's Keep not an eye on, uh, tailored to him. Yeah, yeah. it's not tailored. Just yeah. one substance abuse. <laughs> Silver <problem>. trays of <laughs> cocaine. A <laughs> uh, uh, thing that I thought was interesting that came out was the score, obviously. Uh, and, and I would say for people who are trying to figure out the music cues, this book is just like that alone is really kind of worth the price because, Oh, because there's like classical pieces. There's the, uh, Wendy, what's her name? Wendy Carlos. Wendy yeah, Carlos, yeah, yeah. who's the composer, mm-hmm. but things blend and, and yeah. it's hard to tell if you're not really aware of what it is. Yeah. The, the, the composer says, you know, a musicologist might not think it was like the purest thing to do, but yeah, they would, it would be, I think, nearly impossible for somebody just listening to be able to figure out what all the cues are because when they're laid yeah. out, it's insane. Yeah. And it'll be like not just um, editing a cue down to shorten it and put pieces together that work like they do in movies as well, but like then uh, from different artists and different pieces yeah. putting them together. And wasn't Wendy Carlos sending him 
pieces just based off either the script or the novel that she wasn't working to footage or anything like that. And he was using them kind of piecemeal, I think. Yeah. And she expresses disappointment that it wasn't, um, a lot of the stuff wasn't used. And I looked, uh, you can go on YouTube, her unused shining cues are online. And you, I think what she was saying, like, uh, when she read the script, it was like, um, it was more Gothic. And uh, so, yeah. And she didn't know, even know that it was going to be so like brightly lit and stuff like that. So a lot of the music does sound kind of like more gothic. Oh, but man, it works. It's yeah. So good. I mean, I think the first track that they heard that she sent was the opening, like, dun, 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 yeah. Dun, dun. yeah, which, yeah. Uh, and listening to that too, I re-listening, the thing I love too is in that cue, you hear that hum of the synthesizer that, I don't know if it's just the engine of it running, the but buzz, it's like, yeah, yeah, like, the, 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 yeah. Uh-huh. Like even when notes aren't being played, it's just there. Yeah, so freaky. Which is like it just lends that ghost in the machine feel of yeah. not just the hotel is haunted, but the synthesizer has this ominous spirit yeah. underlying its tones. You know, um, and and yeah, one of the tidbits in that when they were picking music, you know, they're just trying to see what works by taking music. One of the people was listening to a lot of uh, uh, Vangelis, uh, 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 Vangelis. I, mean, I think it's Vangelis. Yeah. I think, yeah. And they were like loving his music and they were like, hey, let's see how it works with the shiny. I was like, oh, not, not too good. Yeah. But uh, it's uh, funny that it was um, a year before Chariots of Fire and two years before Blade, Blade Runner. Runner. So Co- had even Cosmos in ways- come out yet? Oh. Oh, is that he did music for Cosmos? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, the um, just the idea of somebody being able to see that music could yeah. work as film score, even if you don't pursue that idea, just that somebody's a genius enough to like I know. see where it's going. I don't mean yeah. to muscle it back to James Bond, but what, 1968 mm-hmm. on Her Majesty's Secret Service? Synthesizer in the score? Damn! Yeah. Yeah, yeah when I hear it, it'll pop up and like... Abbey Road, that's like a synth in a on a Beatles sixties yeah. album. You're like, am I mistaken that that might? I think Honor Majesties might be the first use of synth in a movie. So that cool. is awesome. You know what? There needs to be all the great documentation in this movie on my little factoids. Because well, because the opening shot of that movie is James Bond playing like a moog, right? Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. Played a, a baby elephant walk on a moog. <laughs> While Kubrick continued with Nicholson, Denon, and Nelson, the Lloyds had some time off. They were excited by the fact that Star Wars had been filmed in Elstree a couple of years before and that set pieces were still lying around, lying in wait for the sequel. The Lloyds were also taken on a tour of The Muppet Show, Jim Henson's popular television variety show that was being made across the road at ATV Elstree Center. That is just like a kid's dream that you're like in between Muppets and Star Wars. Pictures of him with Kermit and Statler and Waldorf. Uh, hey, they say this kid's got the shining. I think he has the boring. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, uh, I knew somebody who is a child actor and they wandered around the set 
um, once on universe on the universal lot and, um, um, accidentally came upon the Hill Valley 2015 set from back to the future part two. Oh, wow. So if you're a child actor and you're just like oh, arms it. length from the coolest shit in the world, lucky you forget it. Lucky you. Um, by the third morning of shooting the interview, May 10th, Denon had been able to observe Kubrick closely. I said to Barry, I've noticed something about Stanley, Denon said. We always sat next to each other and we talked in each other's ears, I said. When Stanley comes in every morning and says good morning, he stands right in front of the whole crowd of people who are waiting for him to say something and he looks around. Then he fixes on one person in the crew and that person gets picked on all day long, Barry said. Are you serious? Just watch. And after about six, seven minutes, Kubrick came in. Good morning. Good morning. And he went plunk. And I looked over my shoulder at Barry and Barry looked over his shoulder at me. And we both laughed and slid under the table. He, we did that every morning. Barry and I would see him coming and we'd say, he's coming. He's coming. Sink down, sink way down. We'd sink until he had picked someone else that day. And then we'd sit up. Actually, I don't think he ever picked on the actors. It was always the crew. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, and when I said lucky you there, I meant the royal you. L- r- lucky yeah. all child actors. Uh, yeah, and, got to, and but, the uh, female sheep. Yes. Uh, the the thing, though, about yeah, wanting to not just be the person who gets teased that day. I was talking with my wife recently that there was probably like for th- two to three years when I was a boy sort of like bridging the period around puberty. There was a time with my friends that were all very close, but every two weeks, it's going to be somebody's time to be the person who gets just like made fun of. Yeah. And it's not really the determining factor is, can you take it? for those two weeks without being a crybaby. And if you do, then you're weirdly in the clear. Yeah. (laughs) So whatever that, I was just like, uh, Shelly Duvall points to different times where it felt like a boys club. Yeah. That is so boys club. Yeah. (laughs) And talk about alpha. We'll we'll choose one person. They'll get picked on as long as they don't fucking be a baby about it. Then you're going to be okay, dude. It's fight club. It's his alpha dominance, especially if he's not picking on the actors. It's his, his hierarchical thing. (laughs) It's, it's strange. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I get it. I wouldn't uh, be really tough for me to, walk onto a set with a bunch of crew guys and be like, okay, gentlemen, um, today we're going to do rack focus. <laughs> Shut up, you prick. <laughs> I'll do what I feel like. Um, there was, um, uh, on 782, they just mentioned what um, sort of that when Terry Semmel gets to watch it and ha- uh, the head of Warner Brothers and how it's presented to him and how then he talks about it. Um, I'm bringing this up because uh, I think it hasn't been brought up on our podcast yet, uh. but there's a, a documentary called SK-13, which is Stanley Kubrick's 13th movie, Eyes Wide Shut. 
And the guy who did the Leon Vitale documentary a few years ago is making about Eyes Wide Shut. Oh. He did a Q&A. Now, this documentary has been made for two or so years. The last two times it was supposed to be at Cannes. And mysteriously, can kind of in the eleventh hour will be like, we're not showing up, but maybe next year. Why? And the last time it was a controversy, or there was suspicions because it was the Cannes Film Festival that was celebrating the 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 guest honorary guest was Tom Cruise, and so it probably wasn't even Tom Cruise going like, I don't Ooh. want any documentary. It was more can probably being like, well, if this is showing at the festival when he's on the red carpet. It's going to be probably one of the five questions people ask. And what do you think about this? Eyes wide I wouldn't be surprised if it was Cruz getting ahead of it, or at least his people. And by people, I mean... Well, or Warner Brothers or whatever. Yeah. Now, the filmmaker, um, he did this really... He did this Q&A. That's about an hour and a half where he took questions after the news came out just to give people clues. And he dropped a really <gasps> big nugget what? of information that when I heard it, Matt, I literally went... <gasps> what? Um, so... He said, this is his story. Uh, he went to the Chinese theater to see Eyes Wide Shut the day it opened. While he's watching it, he sees a shot and he remembers it. And he goes, oh, that's kind of a clue into what this movie is about. That This shot. He doesn't explain what the shot is. And he's like, I, it was in my mind because I remember thinking, oh, that's saying something. And then he's like, a couple weeks later, I went back and that shot wasn't in the movie anymore. And I went to Leon Vitale and I asked him, hey, I noticed that there's a shot that was in the, when it opened on opening weekend and that shot's not in. And it's important to know Kubrick's dead yes. already at this point. Yeah. yeah. And there's already a little bit of tomfoolery about how it was edited because I read that um, Robert Kolker book about the making of Eyes Wide Shut where the, again, Terry Semmel, the cut that him and Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman all watched didn't open with Nicole Kidman disrobing and dropping her dress, which is like a huge opening shot of Eyes Wide Shut they put that in there after. So that is one version of how the cut they saw and approved wasn't the cut that, you know, what there was a different cut from that point. But so this filmmaker, this documentarian says to Leon Vitale, like I noticed there wasn't a shot there. And Leon Vitale's like, there were different cuts that got released. And based on that, then this documentarian started exploring what went on. And it was like, then it kind of becomes its own story about what was done with the movie after it had come out. But that's like, um, when I read this Terry Semmel thing about how almost kind of like a formality of like, I'm showing you this pretty late. It'd be really impossible for you to make changes by a studio or what? E even if somebody has final cut, you can yeah. kind of go. Oh, I thought this. This would you consider it or something like that? But the fact that 19 years later, that same Terry Semmel would see a cut of a movie that then would have other shots added by Kubrick's team, and then seemingly have shots that are different from opening weekend. So the direct the director didn't say what the shot was. Uh, no, and somebody that was the first question. Of course, I mean that was the thing. He's like, there was a missing shot. I went. Oh, 
what? And is he saving the, it for his documentary? He yes. Just, oh, okay. The Q and A guy Fair was enough. like, he was like, so what is that shot? Immediately, and the guy was like, you'll have to see the documentary. I'm not going to tell you that. Any you know? news on when this is coming out? Uh, I mean, it's held up because of these weird uh, these things. So I can't wait for that documentary to come out because obviously, yeah. just being a fan of Eyes Wide Shut. It'd be dope, but then it seems like it's going to have some juicy stuff. In is it. that book good on Eyes Wide Shut? It is. It was eye-opening to like um, how th- certain behind-the-scenes things, like oh, that's the one scene that is filmed on a real street. I mm. didn't uh, like, and they did it because they thought Kubrick thought, oh, we're using the sets too much. People, are, it was like later in the shoot, so they were like, let's just go out quickly and and. But then there's cool details because. They had to change the number on a street, so they put up a number, and you know that was a specific number, and of course it has all these like oh, numerology stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, that's cool. Yeah. Um, Kubrick had cast Billy Gibson, who had been recommended by Kubrick's dentist. This is as the old lady in room 237. Oh, that's not the uh, guitarist for ZZ Top? Nope. <laughs> she fit the description, more or less, of what the director was looking for. She had no teeth and was missing one breast, according to Cook. Makeup artist Tim Smith, recommended by Cook for his work on several Polanski films, was an older man who had been in the business for a long time, having been at one time a makeup artist for Marilyn Monroe. He was an expert on skin effects and other craft, wow. somewhat, somewhat eccentric and mercurial, and spent his downtime sleeping on the floor on cushions. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, the... You know what I've really, in the last few years, old people latex makeup... Uh, uh, has really gotten good. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. Although this for this time is, Oh, I mean, yeah. it is exceptional and it's almost, uh, the stuff now is getting at how good that was. Yeah. You know? We had these giant machines for producing fog effects. Technician, John Bunker says the stuff they used to use in the second world war for hiding submarines. And I do remember driving home one day and hearing on the radio that there'd been a multi-car pileup on the M1 because a strange fog had suddenly come out of nowhere in the middle of summer. We all knew what it was, and we'd been producing all afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) Smoking on the shining set. Yes, indeed. We were smoking on the shining set. It may be the most number of takes in history for a single close-up, Brown says. Stanley did 148 takes of a seven-minute scene on this close-up. Finally, Scatman couldn't take it anymore. Stanley felt he was being cruel in some way and put an end to it. When Stanley walked away, Scatman said to me, That Stanley, he's really something. I had the impression that he had almost deliberately wept a bit just to stop the torment. Whoa, like... Yeah. Somebody cries to be like lay off. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Jeez. I um yeah, I I read a book once in college that was written by somebody on the faculty at the University of Iowa and it was called Crying. And it is trying to understand because there really is no biological um it's not like, oh, toxins in your body need to get out and so uh-huh. you choose a time when you have to cry for them to get out. It's just like uh, that's kind of like still one of the few mysteries in life. Is like, isn't it just a signifier for empathy or something? Yeah, like so it's an actual physical manifestation of the need for empathy or something. Exactly. So, wow. well, so then a couple of weeks ago, I was crying, <laughs> and I thought, oh, why is that happening? And I did think, oh, it's 
<laughs> the environment telling you lay off or I need a break. Yeah, or, yeah. So it is funny that <laughs> rear yeah. head was for Kubrick. <laughs> like before, it would be some advancing maniacal murderous tribe, but this time it's Stanley Kubrick. It's like yeah, an ape burying its teeth and gums to like scare somebody away. <laughs> and then just talking about how different humans can be. That like, that's how Scatman handled it. Here's Nixon. I mean uh, Nicholson's version of handling that. Um, Lyons watched Kubrick do multiple takes of Nicholson and Duvall doing a scene in the reception area. When Nicholson became impatient, he goofed around and put his hand under the desk and banged it upward shouting, Hey Kubrick, I'm getting pretty horny over here. Let's get this fucking movie finished. (laughs) Jack Nicholson was horny. (laughs) He shares that story too about, um, how crazy, um, Kubrick was with the placement, the tape placements where he had to put his in the scene where he goes underneath the desk and he's like oh, flipping yeah. out. He's like, I just had the most worst dream. Um, oh, right. Yeah. He was telling the chef when he got home, he was like, Oh my God, I had to put my hands and get my head all in the exact places of the pools of light where they were. Yeah. Um, but when I rewatched the scene, I didn't notice. He's like, It looks like he's really? going, Wait, wait, okay. Got it. Got <laughs> like it. Got twister? it. Twister? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know Patsy Kensett was, I think, v- very heavily considered to play one of the, um, the twins. Who's that? She's an act. She in. Did you see Lethal Weapon two? Yes. She's Mel Gibson's love interest, the South African. She's also was married to Liam Gallagher of Oasis. Oh whoa! Yeah. So do you think she was like um, when the if she would have been on set to see the elevators gush open? At one point in her life, she'd be on set and see the the fish tank explode, and she'd be like, "It's kind of like the elevator it's shining." <laughs> and then she's watching her husband sing "Champagne Supernova." Oh, she's like, yeah. "Well, a blood supernova yeah. came out of the elevators no on the big set deal. of the shining." No big deal. Vitaly says, "I'd found one possible <laughs> the stupidest fucking thing." I've ever <laughs> no, it's not. Patsy Kensett. She was nine years old and seemed very professional. She really knew what she was doing but I was getting nowhere finding someone to match her. Patsy Kensett would ah. go on to have a successful career as a young and adult actress. Hmm. So if she had just had a double, she would have gotten the part. Yeah, possibly. And they do seem to reference that there was some awareness of the Diane Arbus um, photograph of the two of the twin girls when they did the um, the little girl, the Grady girls in The Shining. Oh, really? I don't remember that. Yeah, if you look at the photograph, it's pretty. It's funny because they don't say Stanley saw that and said, let's make the twins like that. It was just, it seems like, I think Leon Vitale says there, there was an acknowledgement that it looked like that. Yeah. As it happened, director Werner Herzog was visiting the set to meet with Jack Nicholson. I about love a this. Potential. Yeah. There's no real story here, but yeah. I haven't even told you. I met Werner Herzog recently and I wished I would have asked him about this, but I forgot. That is, is, you got to meet Werner Herzog. Yeah. yeah. Uh, can I listen to it or would he tell me never to listen to the interview? <laughs> <laughs> I did not survive. And he. Uh, the story I thought you were going to share was uh, that he was the one who they were trying, he was there for the steady cam big wheel shoot. Oh. And they were talking about how the sound is going to be weird. Because oh, that's right. That. Yeah. He's like, Tell I him. think it's rather interesting and yeah. you should use it. And then later they were like, oh, it sounded awesome. He was entirely right. Now this thing that most people are like, 
oh, top three badass things in that movie is the sound of the big wheel, the rugs versus the floor. And that's because it's old not Bird- practical. That's the other thing this book tells you. They they recreated <sighs> it. The, I mean, the or they at least ADR'd it with the same. No, it is. It is. Yeah, it is. Though it's not the real sound. So yeah. Good golly. The thing that I've never even questioned once if it was yeah. like, Phil, I was just like, yep, that's the sound it was making. That's at the, the level of detail. Of yeah. This book. And amazing. how good it is. It's yeah. not, uh, it's as good as, you know, what we're saying, the final photograph. There's no work uh, evidence of Photoshopping. Yeah. So. The makeup, the photograph, the sound design, no movie of this time. You're always like seeing the seams and stuff. You don't see the seams in this. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, we were talking a little bit about the um, way the, the Shining is told and how at the time you might have think MTV was going to influence a certain group of directors, but the slow burn hypnotic thing that's yeah. in The Shining seems to be the thing that really people are going back to right. or, and going like, hey, this is the shit. This yeah. is like the best thing on earth is this kind of like slow burn stuff. Um, it did make me really appreciate... Uh, the Shining. Um, I, I I've been watching Wednesday, and I really liked it. Uh, the dialogue and it look is so funny. And it looks great and stuff, but it's um. I'll say it, this is the criticism I have of most TV. Every scene has to be about a fucking story. Advancing like a plot point or something. Oh, uh, yeah. Not Literally. Just a, like character. Moment. And I'm not just picking on Wednesday. I'm saying I don't know any series on television right now that can just be a vibe scene or a hang right. scene or a. Yeah. And movies, I think, can do it now because they're like, well, you're in the seat for 90 minutes to two and a half hours. You're mine. Yeah. Uh, I can tell this story in a way that's not, and I'm going to say it. TV, when I watch those things, it just feels so please like me. And plot driven. Yeah, yeah. when it, when they're plot yeah. driven. It's yeah. just like, please like me. Yeah. Please like me. Don't worry. Don't worry. There's story happening. I'm telling the story. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's not just about people and it's not just about right. yeah. a feeling. There's intrigue. There's a reveal coming. Yeah. And so watching The Shining, it is really so satisfying. Like along with what you were saying, that there's no mistakes and you're not looking at something being wrong but the just the confidence of somebody being like you don't have to get spoon fed every scene or the whole movie doesn't have to be one big spoon fed what were you gonna say the, well, the lesson to learn is you get those vibe scenes and their character scenes in the shining but ultimately that's that's what the story is so you are they are revealing it yeah but, but as a as a byproduct yes that's yeah 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 um uh, one thing that I read here was because uh, this tips back to how this whole podcast started with Friday the Thirteenth. Uh-huh. Um, the Shining experienced a twenty nine percent drop off in its second weekend of business. This unfortunate change may have been due to negative reviews or to competition with The Empire Strikes Back, wow. but was most likely the consequence of word of mouth and competition with a more straightforward slasher pick. Friday the 13th. Um, and just as those two movies, they both were released in May of 1980 and they couldn't be more like diametrically opposed in terms of what we were just talking yeah, about. Like it's right. uh, not a m- movie that's very refined, 
But it is funny that they do kind of both hinge on uh, a mother protecting her like son. From the opposite side yeah. of things. Whoa, yeah. But if you were like a boy in a divorced family or a quote unquote like broken home or a, a bad dad with a mom who like was looking out for you, that could be kind of like a, a comforting month. You would be like, oh, so my mom will either kill the people who accidentally harmed me yeah. or will save me from my homicidal father. <laughs> Or if I'm the homicidal maniac, she'll protect me. Yes. This is now my dad yes. was no Jack Torrance. Um, and I mean that in a good way. <laughs> like, <laughs> he was so far beyond <laughs> But my parents divorced in 1980 this year. And that was my birthday month. And I, I must have been getting good. God, I didn't Matt, see. You were, that is your birthday month. You were literally turning seven. And, and I, I looked just like Danny Lloyd. It's yes. crazy. Although I didn't see this movie and I didn't see Friday. Good thing he didn't look like Jason Frogboy, Frogboy Jason. (laughs) Give me time. (laughs) I know it's, it's crazy. Oh, speaking of Friday 13th, this is a shameless plug, but I I, uh, finished my ultimately important for society rendering of the Friday, the 13th stunt spectacular. You can, you can just go to a Google red bubble, Matt Gorley. And you can buy a jigsaw puzzle now. Same with the James Bond stunt spectaculars. Beautiful uh, prints, uh, mugs, and this and the like. Because if there was a Friday the Thirteenth stunt spectacular at a theme park, this could be the artwork for it. Yeah, that's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah, um, it's beautiful. It's breathtaking, and people need to get their eyes on it. Toot sweet. Toot sweet. There was a screening for Stanley of the David Lynch film Eraserhead with George Lucas and his wife and editor, Marsha, primary to look at the music and sound effects. I went with Ray and will never forget it, partly because it was such an extraordinary film and partly because Mrs. Lucas shrieked with laughter throughout. (laughs) She's amazing. Um, I liked uh, Spielberg's thoughts on the Ullman scene. Uh, He compared it to the opening job interview scene. This is Steven Spielberg. Normally you would take that scene, the job interview scene, and cut it and only use one third of it in any conventional narrative format today. But Stanley made you sit through that scene. He took his time with it and the actors took their time. Barry Nelson is drumming up the nerve to tell the story to a new caretaker, hoping he won't just get up and say, I'm not taking the job. That kind of patience is Stanley's understanding of his audience. Not a specialty audience, but a general audience. He had a deep understanding of the way we think and behave and react to each other. Yeah. I think it's also um, uh, people are willing to kind of be open to anything for the, uh, like a half hour, right? Yeah. Like when I sit I in a theater, so. it seems like then. around like 25 minutes if people don't have an understanding of like where those, the setting and characters are going to go, then they get antsy. But yeah, there's just people smartphones. And I know the, the, like the funny thing is to say MTV and there was something to that. Mm-hmm ruined people's attention spans smartphones have assured they will never come back to life except for for things that are well done mm-hmm. and that always i always come to mind of of it comes to mind of the bbc tinker Taylor soldier spy because it's so mm-hmm. ponderous in such a good way and mm-hmm. plotting in the anti-james bond there's mm-hmm. no thrills 
And it's just, I just think of people in England when that first aired, looking at probably a pretty small television set with mm. bad reception, mm-hmm. sitting in their two chairs, having like a, you know, a dinner mm-hmm. on a TV tray and just each night watching an hour of that thing. And that's heaven. I don't yeah, know what it is. That's I know. Like, and I'm yeah. sure that's my age now where yeah. there was a time that would have bored me to tears, but yeah. I just love it. It's pure comfort. Love it. Um, more Stanley and Nicholson friction. Yes. They had to vote by four o'clock on a Friday afternoon if they wanted to continue after 5 p.m. on set, Vitaly said. And there were two unions, and Jack would say, champagne on set tonight if you vote no. So they'd vote no more often than not. <laughs> uh, that's true. Like um, trying to get out of work an hour early so you can party with your friends. Man. Yeah. Oh, man. I only have really one other, uh, one I want to Really? But you, no, but I'm saying that so you share yours. It's a good question though. Like, I don't think I can get through all these so we can either just leave them for the people to read or do another episode. But if you're out, maybe it's better to just leave some to the reader. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I can... No, let's do them. Let's pick it. Well, share, I don't, share I mean, them with me. We'll see. I'll, I'll I'll be judicious or whatever. So go ahead. Oh oh oh. Um, I was just gonna say the. Um, this is near the end, and um, near the end of the book, and I, but I think it's a it's a way, in a, in a way to sort of settle this conversation of what. Um, what's intended um, and what's not and what you can interpret it, mm-hmm. interpret it and not. Um, Kubrick said, um, so somebody back in 1980 noted that Jack pursues his wife in The Shining in the same way that Humbert Humbert stalks Peter Sellers in Lolita. Hmm. And Kubrick said, uh, entirely subconscious. If unintentional patterns in a work are as legitimate as intentional ones, then perhaps my work is full of them. Hmm. So Interesting. Uh, that's how I've been trying to understand a little bit of um, interpreting something. Some of these stuff is just more like when things reoccur more frequently. Yeah. Because then at least you can point to evidence like, well, this has happened five times in the movies. This and it's is at least an, something that evidence to they're interested about. in. Yeah. 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 In general, not necessarily f- intentional for the movie, but it's something that preoccupies them in some way, even subliminally or something. Yeah. Which is, I think a better way to work than kind of being like Stanley Kubrick is interested in the Holocaust. So I'm going to figure out how the Eagle on the typewriter represents that interest yes, as opposed exactly. to just being like, Oh, these things kind of keep happening over and over again. And like an analyst in a therapy session would, you just be like, Oh, why does this keep coming up? That's interesting. Yeah. 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 What is it about his lived experience or personality that makes him interested in that sort of thing? Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. This uh, Shelley Duvall on how the sets were so real. I actually got in trouble because I used the toilet in the bathroom set and it was only a prop says Duvall who had mistaken the prop toilet for a working (laughs) toilet. Everything else was real and no one told me it was quite an embarrassing incident. (laughs) Poor Shelley. Shelley Duvall more like smelly poo Vall. (laughs) 
They probably changed her name on the call sheet after that day. <laughs> number one, Jack Nicholson. Number two, Smelly Pooval. <laughs> <laughs> um, McDonald's made a fortune off of us, D'Alessandro would write in his memoirs. Brown recalls, when it came time for dinner, the crew really wanted to break off and go to the pub and have dinner, but Stanley tried to persuade them that if he brought McDonald's sandwiches, I just love that Nicholson's getting champagne. Stanley Kubrick's <laughs> getting McDonald's sandwiches and great hunks to the set that we could perfectly well have a walking, talking dinner and continue the work. Everybody was game to try it. Stanley sent off his big Mercedes Unimog truck down to McDonald's and they loaded him vast quantities. <laughs> the crew took one look at this thing and they were not having this. So there are 130 Big Macs lying around all over the set in a certain amount of disgruntled behavior. Uh, I like that. Um, it sounds sort of McDonald's was still kind of a, a novelty enough that... Uh, it wouldn't like now I feel like if somebody like you couldn't with a straight face go, I'm going to order the crew McDonald's. Everybody'd be like, so you hate us. Yeah. This is a, you're sending a message. Yeah. You're actively sending you. You're back. Then it was like, dad brought home McDonald's. I know. <laughs> I mean, I still would be like dad brought home McDonald's. If anybody brought it <laughs> to McDonald's should have done a tie in like a happy meal with uh, shining toys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Sorry. No, all good. Okay. Some of these, I'm, I'm blazing over some of these. Leave well, I don't want you to feel like you have to blaze. I mean, that should be left to Jack Nicholson. <laughs> hey, man. Hey, Stanley. I'm going to go blaze a doobie before we film this next scene, dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, watching that scene where he's chopping at the bathroom door, it does make me like... Um, uh, whenever I see that scene, I'm like, I wish I was watching that Mountain Dew commercial with Brian Cranston. Oh yeah, yeah. That's like, why am I watching The Shining right now? I wish the I was watching Shining a Mountain Dew commercial. Walked so Mountain Dew could run, <laughs> so the dew could flow, man. <laughs> um, Adams enlisted two aides: a secretary and the production runner. One of the jobs I had, Weinstein says, was helping type the all work and no play documents. She had me do a couple and I was a horrible typist. They looked genuinely psychotic when I was done with them. Stanley was really pleased. Weinstein spent as long as an hour and a half on a single page using the prescribed cheap yellow paper. He even managed to sneak in one with a deliberate typo. All work and no play makes Zach a dull boy. I wonder yeah. if that's in. I haven't examined. Our- Somebody on my on our Twitter, they found uh, one of the German ones from the the footage because we were always like hey where's that footage exist and this person was like right here buddy right Um, over here buddy (laughs) oh yeah I got your uh, um spaghetti right here (laughs) strong language uh yeah, uh, the also the information in there that's interesting about um, uh, Vivian Kubrick and just the um, I know we've shared about before. Um, one thing, if people want to see her, there's a Japanese documentary that um, was filmed and put on Japanese television that's now on YouTube, but. 
it's the one where Stanley, they talk about in the book, he's in his office on the phone and they're saying he's not there. So they have to do it by phone, even though he's like (laughs) probably four doors down or something. But, um, it's good because he talks about, you know, the meaning of like 2001 and the meaning of shiny. He's a pretty open book about it, but it's cool because Vivian Kubrick is sort of the person who's guiding and giving the person the tour. Uh And she goes through, the little storage space that they turned into the kitchen. Uh, Cause that's just a, like oh, right, a little right. warehouse space on the yeah. thing. And they made it look Ooh. like this big. And when you're walking through it, you're like, Oh my God, this is the kitchen. That's so funny. <laughs> flipped it. <laughs> um, if I could flip anybody's house to look like um, the shining little hotel, that'd be good. But just for one night, I'd do that. Wouldn't you love to stay in the Overlook? I'm surprised yeah. they haven't done a pop-up hotel, but it's too big to. Yeah, that'd be cool though. And then somebody wakes you up in the middle of the night with an axe. You're like, huh. uh, I said, do not disturb. Maybe, maybe you should put a do not disturb on your head, on your mind. Yes, it is disturbed. That's the tag I'm going to put on your brain, sir. Do not disturbed. Already too disturbed as it is. Oh, my God. If they were just like, we need to change the shiny, sir. Sure, it was a successful book, but let's call the movie. Do not disturb. Yeah. yeah. Do not. This man is disturbed. <laughs> disturbed enough. Thank you. No need to clean the set. Oh my god, that would be a really funny tag to put out for like the housekeeper at a hotel. Uh, Disturbed enough. Thank you. (laughs) Back on set, Nicholson was jumping up and down to stay limber and keep his adrenaline going. Others would recall him shouting, death, hair, fuck, kill. (laughs) Yeah, that guy also shares that the, the story about how Jack Nicholson at some point, he's when he's getting up, he his face like would pass like a lamp or a desk or something uh-huh. so that the crew guy could see him, but the camera wouldn't. Uh-huh. So he'd do a big monologue of like crying or screaming. And then as he would pass up, he'd cross his eyes and like stick his tongue out of the eye. Like, Amazing. Truly the anti Daniel Day Lewis uh, in uh, the scene will bring to make a crew guy. Laugh. I love that. I love that. It is a uh, very, very charming. Nicholson would add in 1980, Stanley has been living in England for many years and isn't familiar with the Johnny Carson show, but he agreed that that was the kind of thing that the guy would do, speaking of the Here's Johnny. Oh, yeah. Stanley wanted a funny line there. It was the most horrific scene in the movie, and he wanted to break it up, so I came up with that line. It holds a lot of the essence of what we were trying to do. I kept thinking of those old EC comics, referring to the entertaining comic series Hmm. from the 1950s, such as Tales from the Crypt, which often mixed humor with horror. Yeah, and there's a YouTube uh, collection of clips of people's just Here's Johnny references. Oh, really? And to the point where they become hypnotic because you're just hearing like the same. Oh, but wow. like people do variations. Like if it's a a cartoon pig holding yeah. it, they'll go, Here's Piggy. Yeah. Like, mm. Here are some of his alternate Im- improvisations. His spontaneous. Another of Nicholson's spontaneous lines was Honey, I'm Home from the popular 1950s sitcom I Love Lucy. Hmm. Um, Yeah, it does um, also feel like I know that The Exorcist is contemporary and there's even contemporary stuff like the moms and an actor in movies. But 
This does feel like one of the early horror movies that's referencing contemporary things. You know, he's watching Roadrunner and there's like cartoons and um, people are watching and discussing, you know, reading Catcher in the Rye. Uh, Watching Summer of 42. The Catcher in the Rye thing, too, is kind of weird that in May 1980, this movie comes out. In December 1980, it is the book that Mark David Chapman has found reading when he shoots John Lennon. Ooh. So it's a little kind of a spooky foreboding. Continuity Polaroids from Scene 101, Jack's encounter with Grady in the red bathroom. Grady's name changes mid-film. Ullman refers to him as Charles Grady during the interview, but in the men's room, Grady introduces himself as Delbert Grady. Alexander Walker assumes that this was done on purpose because Kubrick would have detected and easily corrected the problem, perhaps another effort to create an uncanny feeling in the audience, though there is no evidence of Kubrick's intentions. Wow. That sort of stuff is nice, that it just remains a mystery. And then that scene ends. So do you want to read what's on the uh, little invite card that he hands to? Oh, yeah. So the red bathroom scene originally, or not originally, it was was conceived at some point to end with him handing, Grady handing a little card to Jack Nicholson with some, a little tidbit. Yeah, it goes, there is no death. Lifelessness is only a disguise behind which hide unknown forms of life. Mm. I mean, that's yeah, that's some vague shit. Yeah, but wonderful. Sounds like, uh, hey, if you kill, good things happen, buddy. Yeah, it'd be uh, funny if uh, he just had that in his like Rolodex of business cards later, and somebody's like looking through it and they find out they're like, uh, <laughs> this is some weird triple uh, A card. <laughs> His diner's club card. There's some stuff in here about how Kubrick was going to make everybody work pretty hard through Christmas. And that that's when Kubrick loses me. When corporations and companies don't consider families and think whatever work they're doing is more important or like one person's passion project is more important than people having personal lives, boils my blood. Yeah, I know. I know. I don't like it either. I don't like it either. David Lynch has a good quote about that where he talks about how he tries to p- treat people with respect because he goes, it was really sweet. He's like, I just think of all those poor kids who go home and their parents are upset because they had a bad day at work and now the kids Aww. have to be. And it's like, it's a very easy way to pull that, to, to not be a dick to your coworkers is thinking, yeah. Oh, yeah. Did, does this bum out their fucking kids? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You hear that, Ebenezer Scrooge? <laughs> Tiny Tim needs his daddy. <laughs> um, well, I still have so oh, many. Oh, no. Well, what do we, we can do? Um, uh, a little, um, no, no, no. Let's sit here, man. Come okay. on, come on, buddy. Well, here's cra- here's crazy. Um, they, the assistant directors, did that. Kate Robinson says Shelley didn't seem to let it bother her. Sometimes it did. I can't remember if I ever said anything to her like, "Don't worry, it's just part of the deal. It's part of the role." Meaning, I think Kubrick's harassment. 
I hung out with Shelly every once in a while. She had a lot of friends. The Monty Python group were all her friends. Steven Seagal, the martial arts guy, he was coming from Japan at that time. She arranged for him to put on a demonstration for everybody in our little theater, and it was memorable. Amazing. Oh, my God. Yeah. The different Swigan lifestyles of yeah. 70s Londoners. Yeah. Um, I wonder if uh, Steven Seagal was like... Maybe I shouldn't be doing martial arts movies. That's the dream right now, but maybe I should be making sketch comedy movies. Like these Python guys who are oh, really yeah. funny. Or maybe they were like, should we be doing martial arts? <laughs> um, yeah, the um, and then also a little story you hear about Shelley Duvall is that she was dating Ringo and left Paul Simon broke up with yeah, Paul Simon and started right. dating Ringo. And one of the gifts Paul Simon gave her was a Simon electronic game that you see oh, Stanley yeah. Kubrick, a picture of him playing it. Yeah. But is that like, yes, Paul Simon, I was a puzzle to you, right? Shelly Duvall. <laughs> so here's a puzzle named Simon. <laughs> you doink. <laughs> I don't know you why you call her a doink. <laughs> you doink. Here's another thing that boils my blood. This is the man that used to phone the gaffer, Larry Smith, on his day off, said Vowles. Speaking of Kubrick. And then when the phone wasn't answered, the next day in front of the unit, Kubrick would say, I phoned you yesterday. Where was you? What was you doing? I'm sorry, Stanley. I went to a cricket match. That's not good enough. When I'm phoning, I want you there. You've got to answer me. Mm. Brutal. I mean, I don't care how... Sundays are my days. How talented and amazing you are. Um, It's funny because... You know, Van uh, Kubrick saying the vanishing is like his ultimate nightmare that somebody could come and snatch somebody away from you. Yeah, it seems like is like because then they're not around to take your phone calls. <laughs> like the idea of yeah. presence, yeah, your presence for me when right. I need it is In, yeah. Uh, it, hey, it's part of the whole human condition, Matt. But I think with him, it seemed to be on the blood that they use for the elevator shoot. Tessa brought her samples back and put them on the shelf in her office. We had a long weekend and the sun came through the large windows and hit these glass bottles. Well, they fermented or whatever the expression is and exploded. We came in on Tuesday after the long weekend and the smell. It was the most disgusting. You couldn't work in it. We had to bring in industrial cleaners. It smelled like an abattoir that had never been hosed down for weeks after that in the art department, says Vitaly. Uh, so you said that person's name was uh, Tessa, too, the person who brought the blood? Yeah. Sounds like Tessa made a real mess <laughs> If you ask me, I think Tessa made a real mess A good deal of the blood to the horror of Borham Wood residents apparently escaped from the studio into the surrounding areas. A stream ran through a nearby village, and one day the police were alerted because residents were alarmed by a sea of red gore running through town and washing into dishes. I love that so much. And then also that they were fighting old snow years later, like gunked up in pipes and stuff. Yeah, that's right. The door started opening and the blood started pouring out, Vitaly says. When it looked like it had all gone and it had settled down because it had taken every piece of furniture in its path with it, the guy who was actually in one of the boxes saw the sofa coming at him, the camera boxes, mm. and he didn't know what was going to happen. I shouted, cut. Then Stanley came in and said, was it okay? It was so beautiful you wanted to hug him and you wanted to go, yes, it was okay, and you're such a clever boy for organizing it all. <laughs> he was so petrified it wasn't going to work. It was so unlike him, and yet at the same time it was very much him. Yeah, it's um, 
to and getting to see that full extended uncut footage of the elevator with the blood coming up on screen as the trailer. Yeah. So getting to see it uh, like that, not the movie where it's kind of chopped up a little bit, and seeing how it rushes the uh, furniture and blows it up into yeah. the screen is like they really capture lightning. Scatman came on set to say goodbye to Stanley, Vitaly recalls, and said, I've written a song for you. Stanley said, whoa, okay, whoa, okay, I can't listen to it now. But Scatman, he didn't listen. He started singing it in front of the whole crew. Scatman didn't care. He just did it. It was a wonderful song. Stanley was standing there going, oh, right, okay. He was so embarrassed. It was very funny. And I won't read them, but the lyrics to the entire song are in this book, as well as a wonderful picture of Scatman performing it. Yeah, uh, it's it's funny because, yeah, I, I feel that where, like, you know, if you're on stage and somebody on stage looks at you and sings, you're like, ooh, ooh, ooh oh, uncomfortable. Yeah. So in real have, life, yeah. yeah. And he's got a, a pipe that's an upside down revolver. <laughs> Amazing. All right, we're getting there. Um, there's a, one scene where Scatman Crothers breaks down on set, Unger says. He breaks down on set and starts crying. He had quite the hard time, actually, because Stanley's demanding so many takes. He fluffed the lines. Stanley played this back in the cutting room, and he's laughing at it. Stanley and Vivian thought Scatman was trying to get off early from the shoot. I don't think that was the reason, really. I think he was genuinely, genuinely distressed for having or having a breakdown on the set. Goes to what we were talking yeah. about. Yeah, <laughs> he was a complicated, complicated man, folks. He uh, would laugh at takes of people crying. Okay, <laughs> moving on, moving along. <laughs> uh, oh, I mentioned um, the room two thirty seven thing. Leon Vitali in this book talks about how he thought the book was wrong because it was suggesting that Stanley Kubrick intentionally did this stuff and like lied about the, um, the person who believes the moon landing was faked. He's Uh like, so this person who has this opinion, it's not the documentary Tarion's opinion. It's the opinion he's just presenting. Right. He's suggesting that Stanley lied to his own family about it. That's so insulting. I'm like, I think there's other stuff to be angry about. Absolutely. (laughs) This is my lived experience that I was so, I've talked about this already, but I was so thrilled to see in this book. By Christmas, the trailer for The Shining was in theaters, where for the most part, it was having its desired effect. At least one moviegoer, however, wrote to Warner Brothers to complain, the cascade of what was obviously blood and not Kool-Aid was disturbing and ruined their viewing of the light comedy going in style. (laughs) How I first saw the trailer. (laughs) Uh, did you write that letter? Uh, maybe my Dear mom Mr. did. Mr. Warner brother, <laughs> please um, tell your other brothers. No, no, no. There's all kinds of examples of Saul Bass's art for the posters. I know. The red version and letters from Stanley Kubrick to Saul Bass saying, please, like all caps underlined, send me pencil roughs first because I think Saul Bass was used to just kind of sending like four finished versions and having one chosen, but Stanley Kubrick had so many. Yeah. It is funny. The, the, um, finished version is like the, send me the pencil sketches is like, send me early drafts. Yeah. Not, yeah. Don't think you can just present this thing to, (laughs) right. With a ribbon on it and a bow. (laughs) Also the, some of the alternate posters in there are cool. There's like the one that's like, it looks like, um, the wall. It's like the, the shining's written in like splatter, like blood yes, splatter. That's that right. One yeah. Cool. Yeah. 
Um, Do you think at any point Saul Bass was ever up to anything kind of like tricky and Stanley Kubrick said, I caught you, Bass. Do you yeah. do you think he said that? Now that I, I hear that. I don't. <laughs> they were going to do reshoots. And because Danny had grown so much, they couldn't. Do I know. It. Isn't yeah. that wild? Yeah. He even ages a little bit in the movie. If you do the... No, when they film stuff, you can see also a couple of times he gets a little chunky. Yeah. <laughs> I just learned that about Anthony Michael Hall on vacation, that they reshot the ending. And oh, and he's, he's so like tall. foot taller. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's why you couldn't be in Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> You're too tall, kid. Mr. Kubrick, Mr. Kubrick, uh, I can wear the opposite of heightening devices. <laughs> 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 There's shovels on my soles that dig little holes as I walk. <laughs> um, there's stuff about the. Let's see, blah blah blah. The what? Uh, in April 19th, Carlos and Elkind deliver a good deal of their music, including the Rocky Mountains and flying over Rockies for the Torrance family drive. In all, they sent Kubrick two albums worth, 24 tracks, such as Thought Clusters and Winter Maze. When the Shining track arrived, says Stainforth, I think six takes direct from New York with varying amounts of the Rachel Elkland vocal backing. It was obvious straight away that it was absolutely perfect for the opening of the film. Superb. It took Stanley all of five minutes to select the best take. He just said something like, okay, Gordon, take four. And I dropped it in. The cue is called Shining Title Music on Carlos's later collection of music for The Shining. So cool that something can, you know, a process that takes a lot of thought in other ways, something can be as immediate as five minutes. Yeah. And that, like, the, I just saw the picture of him crossing the mirrors. That just one tidbit that I thought of was like Jack Nicholson talking about how Stanley Kubrick said, Hey, when you are walking to the bar, can you, when you, every time you cross the mirrors, can you just move your arms? And then that becomes a thing that they add music to later. Oh, my God. But it was just like seemed to be like a, a notion rather than a planned thing. On Thursday, May 15th at 10 a.m., Smith wrote that Ray arrives and almost instantly begins to panic about this afternoon screening at Pinewood for Newsweek and Warner Brothers. The money at last being allowed to glimpse their their multi-million dollar investment. There was reason for concern. They knew that when the screening for Warner Brothers began, the projectionist wasn't going to have the whole film on hand. The last few reels were still being mixed. Stanley was so calm, but he was always cool, cool as a cucumber. Wow. That's crazy. The balls, the guts. Yeah. To turn in a term paper where the last two pages aren't in and being like, trust me, teach, trust me. <laughs> um... And if I was that teacher, I'd go, I trust you, but be careful, Murphy. (laughs) (laughs) I only teach kids with the last name. Murphy, sorry, that's my quirk. It's your Murphy's Law. Uh, Okay. The Shining seems to be about the quest for immortality, the immortality of evil. Men are psychic murderers. They want to be free and creative and can only take out their frustrations on their terrified wives and children. Apparently, Jack lives forever only to attack his family endlessly. This is Pauline Kale. Kale hypothesized that Kubrick had gone back to his view of human nature as illustrated by the first scenes of 2001. Man is a murderer throughout eternity. 
The bone that was high in the air is turned into Jack's axe, held aloft, and Jack crouched over, making wild, inarticulate sounds as he staggers in the maze has become the ape. Yeah, that's awesome. I've, I've heard that interpretation before, too, that this beginning and end of 2001 and Shining are flipped. Interesting. Because yeah. the beginning of The Shining is going over landscapes, and that's the end of 2001. Yeah. And then, yeah. Uh, but the it also just seems, too, like... 2001 is a very 1967, 68 movie of like, there is some optimism about what these, this flower generation is up to. And 1980, it feels pretty bleak. It does. Yeah. It feels like a very 1980 movie. Same year that John Lennon would get shot. feels like it's part of the same kind of, yeah. You could argue, Matt, it's a little bit of a time we're in right now. Somebody might say we're kind of in that Jimmy Carter age of malaise right now. Yeah, huh? I think it I, seems I, like it. I think we're doing awesome right now. I think um, everybody feels great. According to Dis D. Alessandra, and I'm I'm getting near the oh, end yeah. here. Um after everything was done and the film was out in every conceivable market, Kubrick asked his loyal aide to take dozens and dozens of reels, the dailies, deleted scenes, and so on, and burn them. With help, D'Alessandro loaded the film into a white Volkswagen minibus and made the first of three trips to a chemical waste incinerator in Damn. London. We took a big truck up to the disposal area, says Vitali. I spent five days burning all the outtakes from A Clockwork Orange, The Shining, Barry Lyndon, the director gave D'Alessandro a new VHS tape of The Shining to watch, but his assistant, intent upon other tasks, still didn't have the time to watch it. <laughs> Do you think there's any chance that that person, I think their loyalty to Kubrick, and if they've been with them that long, they would burn it. But you feel like, not out of duplicity to Kubrick, but out of posterity to humanity, yeah. they would have saved that stuff but the fact that he hasn't like he didn't watch the shining even after giving a video copy it yeah. was almost like he was chosen for his lack of like fandom it seems like it so is. that he would yeah. do stuff like that where you're like, I don't care. sociopathic yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um but yeah to imagine that like that footage at the end of the in the hospital scene that was like a minute and a half long that some people got to see that nobody will ever get to see it is that that something like that could exist post-industrial ages. <laughs> I know. Yeah. A more helpful side effect of the film was that it enabled Kubrick to come to the aid of fellow director Ridley Scott. When Scott was pressured by Warner Brothers during post-production to create a new ending for his 1980 film, 82 film Blade Runner, he'd already exhausted most of the budget but needed aerial shots for background plates in a new visual effects scene. Associate producer Ivor Powell remembered The Shining's opening helicopter shots and suggested that Scott contact Kubrick, who quickly supplied Scott with around 30,000 feet of second unit aerial footage. I guess they hadn't burned that. I know. I was, huh. Yeah. Curious. He only asked that they not use anything that was actually in The Shining. Scott and his editors modified the footage optically from 185.1 to Cinemascope or 235.1. Hmm. They could cut this out, cut out the thus they could cut out the Volkswagen from the bottom of the frame Ooh. and use only the remaining negative for their background right. plates. In the foreground were actors Harrison Ford and Sean Young in a futuristic hover sedan or spinner. Yeah, um, that's pretty uh, generous to give your yeah. unused footage. I wonder if he was also like, uh, and check out this Vangelis guy. I think, <laughs> yeah, he'd really. like his work and Joe Turkle. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Gil Smith says, when I went back to working on a normal film, Krull, 1983, <laughs> with a normal director like Peter Yates, who is a great guy, it seemed really boring because working with Stanley really pushed you. We were all probably pushed to the limit by him. But weirdly, after you work on one of his films, everything else seemed quite conventional and boring. Yeah, I remember hearing the detail. The Full Metal Jacket actors were saying that, like, you might hate me now, but the next time you work on something, you're going to miss it. Because you'll be like, oh, we moved on before the scene was good. Yeah. Yeah. When they made this TV miniseries, they had to strike a deal with Kubrick that they could do it. But the only provision was that when King talked about the movie, he couldn't talk about his version of the film. He couldn't talk about Kubrick's version yeah. and like talk shit about it. Isn't that yeah, funny? I know. <laughs> uh, you can date other people. Like, just don't talk about uh, yeah, like the yeah. bad shit I did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Says Diane Johnson, and he said, "I talked to Michael Hare on an ongoing basis, and he said that Stanley got kind of strange." This is toward the end. I know this was the quote that probably was the most like. Whoa. Yeah, he was getting very much more interested in going to the range and shooting his guns, and he was kind of paranoid about the place. This was at the end, you know. Are they coming? Protecting his property, things like that, Stainforth says. He did like guns, but what he really loved was his dogs. He really had a very deep affection for them. At a domestic and social level, he was very ordinary, thank God. And it's one of the things I really admire about Stanley was that he seemed to have insulated his family from the most of the crap of the film industry. But over and over, you hear how good he was to Danny Lloyd yeah. and animals. And you, it, it does feel a little bit like he had a sort of, not just trouble dealing with cool guys, but adults in a certain sense, mm. and that he was maybe threatened by them where he wasn't by animals and children who tend to love you unconditionally, which yeah. is also what he basically asked for from his workers was loyal, unconditional yeah. loyalty. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, um, just two more. No, that's great. The, um, yeah. Uh, two things about the Stanley got kind of strange and started collecting guns. One, when I read that, I was like, that might be the most explosive. If this, when this book starts getting read a lot, yeah that seems to be the thing that a lot of people go, Oh, yeah. what's that all about? And want a whole, you know, vanity fair article about it. Mm. Um, the second thing was I did think, Oh, the Kubrick estate did approve this. So this is a piece of information that they are. Okay. So also that just yeah. like, Oh, what does that mean in terms of future stuff too? Will there be, I think the bar is set pretty high with John Milius. So, <laughs> if, unless you're exceeding yeah. him. Yeah. In November 2016, Duvall appeared on the Dr. Phil reality television show. Although she seemed to be suffering mentally, instead of helping her like the show claimed to be doing, Dr. Phil just goaded her on, of course, that fucker, reported yeah. Vanity Fair with questions about what she believes her late Popeye co-star Robin Williams is doing right now. And as she thinks the president is sending her coded messages... Upon seeing the broadcast, Vivian Kubrick was so upset that she initiated a GoFundMe page to raise money for the actress's medical expenses. Vivian tweeted to Dr. Phil, you're putting Shelley Duvall on show. He's such a fucking quack. Wow. Any doctor that would, it's just yeah. gross. Dr. Heal thyself. Thank you. And then the last one I have here is, Puzzlement, says Christiane Kubrick of her reaction to the documentary. 
237. Yes. Total puzzlement, Harlan says. When other people spoke to Stanley about The Shining, well, how do you explain that Jack was there in 1921? His answer was, look, I never explain things. I don't understand myself. That covers a lot. And I think it perfectly legitimate is legitimate as an answer because it is a ghost story. Don't ask me why. But hey, what a great little to be continued now for Room 237 because yes, that's exactly. the jumping off point. It is a movie that is so rich. I mean, just now. All the tidbits that we could talk about. It's a movie that's so rich that when people watch it, they have to come up with an explanation. You got to. Your brain requires it. And and that's fun. It's not even like you have to scratch an itch, though there's probably an element of that, too. It's it's a movie that's giving you the perfect formula for you to fill in the blanks on. And I think the best movies... Do that. Some of the best movies give you all the answers, which I like too. It depends on the movie. I wonder if it's partly because it's about Shining is about death and about yeah. family. Yeah. And those are two gaps that in life you're always trying to kind of fill out in your right. mind. Like what's my relationship to my family members? And then they're merged and it's like yeah. then the answers, you need the answers exponentially. The questions, you know, yeah. become even more so. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So well, good. buddy, it was so wonderful chatting with you. Nice chatting with you guys too. Yes. Seen you. We've got, can we read a few baby yeah. xenomorphs? Sure. Um, and then we'll uh, call it a day for this episode. So we've got quite a few, but we won't get through all of them today. We've got, let's read them. All right. So, Fun. um, oh, he'd like a new no, no. This is Justin Rogo. Justin oh, Rogo. You got a no, no, a new one. Yeah, new no no. Justin's a rogo. Nice rhyming, by the way. <laughs> um, Wilford Brimley landing in Chile in search of his grandson, who is David Rogers, the sender of this. Who did Brimley? You or me? I think you. Let's do it together. Yeah. <laughs> well, oh. I'm landing in Chile in search of My his grandson, David Rogers. David, David. Rogers. Ah. Um, Diabetes. Uh, okay, this this Justin Kitty is sending out a, a shout-out for his buddy Joel, whose birthday was July 26th. We're a little behind, but I'd like to take some time. I just like, you know, normally I'm defending Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers, and Donald Trump, but and I'm working on all four trials, by the way. Oh, congrats. Hoping for a fifth, uh, just because I make a lot of money. I want to shout-out Joel on his birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Uh, Ethan Joseph Abraham, shout out to you. Ethan Abraham. Um, uh-oh, guess what? I'm back to shout out Bridget G. Bridget G. Bridget Gimes. Gelms, sorry. <laughs> I prefer you change your name to Soft G so you're Bridget Gelms. Uh... I am Flyming. Would like to shout out um, Robert Kroll with a special thanks to Nicholas Coppola for recommending the James podcast ten years ago. That's a perfect uh, names. Two names to be said in that accent. Shout out to Jacob Miller and uh, New Nona. We'll end with this one for Brandon Ruiz. Hey, Brandon Ruiz. 
are, if, if your name is Brandon, do you have to be branding horses all the time? No. <laughs> no, no, no. Brandon Ruiz doesn't brand horses. Okay, guys. We'll be back next week with Room 237, formerly Room 217, until Tad emailed Stanley with a letter <laughs> made of paper and said, don't do it. Bye, everybody. Bye. For more Gorley and Rust content, head over to patreon.com slash with Gorley and Rust to get episodes ad-free and a whole week early, plus monthly mailbag episodes and feature-length watch-along film commentaries of your favorite horror classics. That's patreon.com slash with Gorley and Rust. Email us at withgorleyandrust at gmail.com and your questions might be featured on a future mailbag episode. With Gorley and Rust theme song by me, Matt Gorley, and performed by Townland. You can find us on Instagram as Townland Band, as well as Paul's fantastic band at Don't Stop or We'll Die. And why not rate and review with Gorley and Rust on Apple Podcasts? It'll help us grow the show and keep us trucking through the Jasons and the Michaels, the Leatherfaces and the Chuckies, the Aliens and the Candymans. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.